0: Well, on Friday, we bought a 2013 Honda Odyssey. Uh, Why would we do something like that? Well, our 2005 town and country, uh, Chrysler town and country, was getting eaten alive by rust, apparently. Uh, It it wouldn't pass inspection, and the brake pads were shot, and the rotors were shot, and we were facing a hefty bill uh, to keep the rust on wheels going. Um, Whitmer Automotive emailed us this, maybe it is time to replace the vehicle. (laughs) We had a need. We had a need. And that need drove us to Jeff Gingrich, autotrader.com, cars.com, Kelly Blue Book, Nada Guides, Edmonds, and ultimately Faulkner Honda in Harrisburg where we bought our Odyssey. When we turned our old van over to, uh, to the salesman Todd our salesman said to Christina out in the parking lot I'm going to take it to the car crusher I-, I mean the back lot so he was using a little humor in our horrible van when we were pulling in it was like so it was just wonderful I'm really thankful for our new van our need drives us to that which can meet our need we ignore many things because we just don't have a need One time Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you consider yourself in pretty good moral health, you'll ignore Jesus. Your need for him will be suppressed by your own self-righteousness. It's when you realize that you're infected with the terminal illness of sin that you're open to receive Jesus Christ as your treatment, cure, and life. Our need drives us to that which can meet our need. This sermon doesn't have to make you feel guilty, miserable, or depressed. I want to say that at the beginning. So you you have to listen until the end. I'm going to hold up a mirror for you to see how wicked you are apart from Christ. This is not a pat yourself on the back message. You can hear those in plenty of other churches. This is a blast of needed truth, but not for the purpose of making you feel guilty, miserable, and depressed. But to awaken greater thankfulness in you for Christ's rescuing work in your life. I want to highlight your need first. And then I want to encourage you saints that Christ has graciously met your need, which I hope increases your thankfulness and motivates your greater obedience. So if you leave here feeling guilty, miserable, and depressed rather than more grateful and motivated, it's probably because you haven't understood your great sin and your great Savior. We've covered the covenant of redemption. Last time we covered the covenant of works. Remember that a covenant is an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw that the Lord God created Adam into covenant relationship with him. God blessed Adam and Eve, gave them conditions to obey, gave a threat for disobedience and implied blessings for obedience. God even gave a sign and pledge of his covenant. The covenant of works is essentially law. Obey perfectly and live, disobey at all and die. Adam was the representative of all humanity. How did Adam do? Well, we're about to see. My outline is a simple syllogism. Here it is. Adam broke the covenant of works. Adam was your federal head. Therefore, you broke the covenant of works in Adam. Let's unpack that. Adam broke the covenant of works. God created Adam, as St. Augustine put it, passe picare, passe non picare, Able to sin and able not to sin. Adam was free and able to obey or disobey God, to obey the law or disobey the law. And Let's see how Adam's choice unfolds in Genesis 3. I think seven points. Number one, the serpent questioned God's good law. The serpent questioned God's good law. Satan used the shrewdest animal to tempt and deceive Eve. The serpent hissed. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, the serpent didn't blatantly deny God's law at that moment. Eve may have assumed that the serpent was simply naive, but we know the full story. The serpent's question subtly cast doubt on God's law and provoked suspicion inside of Eve. Might it be significant also that all throughout Genesis 2 and 3, the name Lord God or Yahweh Elohim, the covenant name of God, is used except when the serpent posed the question, did Elohim actually say? Why didn't Satan use Yahweh, the covenant name of God? Eve followed suit in the conversation. Same thing, Elohim. Interesting. Interesting. Two, the serpent changed God's good law. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Again, from Eve's perspective, maybe the serpent was just naive. Maybe it was just a stupid snake. You missed it. All right, you're ignorant. No, he was trying to confuse her. Here's what God actually said. Genesis 1.29. Behold... I have given you every plant yielding food, seed, sorry, yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. That sounds abundant and that sounds good and that sounds lavish. Then Genesis 2.16 adds, And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You might surely eat of every tree of the garden. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Now, the order there is important. Abundance, blessing, and goodness first. Then prohibition to safeguard the abundance, to safeguard the blessing and goodness. But the serpent lured Eve to focus on God's prohibition minus all the blessing All the promise. He twisted it. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Slick. Slick. It was like a high-pressure situation where a loaded question is asked. Kind of like that. Like asking someone under oath, have you stopped cheating on your taxes? What direction do you go with that? No, I have not stopped cheating on my taxes. Yes, I've stopped cheating on my... Both answers are... The moment you say yes or no, you have to justify what it is you're saying. You have to qualify because it's, it's a loaded question. What do you say? Technically, God did prohibit eating from one tree, but He didn't say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. It was quite a crafty question from a very crafty snake. Number three, Eve added... To God's good law. Maybe Eve could have said, Silly serpent. God is abundantly good and kind to provide me and my husband with all this delicious fruit from all these amazing plants and trees. We're grateful. Our Father is withholding from us the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because He loves us. He loves us and and He wants us to live and He wants us to flourish here with Him in unbroken fellowship with Him. We don't want that to change. Eve's response just somehow seems void of God's abundant provision and promise. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. More importantly... Eve added to God's command, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That's not exactly what God said. That is not what he said. And maybe it was a good idea. Hey, I'm not even going to touch the tree, okay? I'll just stay back. Maybe that's a good idea, but that's not exactly what God had said. That's going farther than what God had said. Why did Eve add that little phrase? And I think she was on a slippery slope already. Every evil is either a reduction, addition, or distortion of God's good law. God's good law must never be tampered with, period. You don't touch it. It is as it is. And if it is tampered with, Devastation is going to ensue. It's to follow. Number four, the serpent denied God's good law. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. At that point, the conversation should have been over. Done. Eve should have killed the serpent or at least told it, stay, okay? I will be right back. Just let me consult with God and my husband To figure out what to do with you. At that moment, God's covenant promises and blessings should have been front and center for her, and she should have exercised dominion over that treacherous serpent. Instead, she abandoned her calling to have dominion over the serpent and considered the blasphemous promise of the snake. Number five, the serpent attacked God's goodness. Satan continued for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil instead of confronting the serpent's treachery Eve listened and grew suspicious of God the serpent's hiss actually seemed sensible to her it promised her something new something fresh but the promise was laced with death number 1 you sh- you will not surely die yes they would yes they would Two, for God knows. Yes, God knew and God was keeping something from them, but he was keeping it from them for their good. Three, your eyes will be open Yes, they will, but not in a good way. They would would come to know evil by experiencing evil. An eye-opening experience? Absolutely, but not a good one. Four, you will be like God. No, Adam and Eve were already like God created male and female with reasoning minds and immortal souls with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after God's image. Eating wouldn't make them like God. They were already like God. Eating would distort God's likeness in them. They would know evil by committing evil, something very unlike God. Eve should have yelled for Adam, Adam, come and handle this snake and crush it for me. They should have killed the snake, but instead she gazed at the tree and she considered Satan's proposition. She saw that the tree was good for food. Her eyes were delighted by it. She lusted for its fruit. She wanted to be wiser. The goodness and trustworthiness of God were attacked. Satan made it seem like God was maliciously withholding something good Isn't it true that sin grows in the soil of ingratitude and unbelief? Six, Eve distrusted God's goodness and broke the covenant of works. It was a horrific scene. This is not a beautiful story. Suspicious and intrigued, Eve reached out. She took a piece of fruit. She bit, she tasted, and she sealed her own depravity and death. There were two trees in the middle of the garden. One was a sign and a pledge of life. The other was a sign and a pledge of death. Rather than gazing at the tree of life, which promised the rewards of of covenant faithfulness, she gazed at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which promised death, and she wanted it. Oh, that I would taste of that tree. She wanted it more than God's promises and blessings. There, right there, is the epicenter of sin, wanting something more than God. One bite put eternal life out of Eve's reach. She was done. Satan, we just have to know this, folks, Satan is a great salesman, a great one. He makes death look desirable, like you actually want it. Eve chose death over God's goodness, God's promises, God's law, God's love. Is one taste worth it? Seven, Adam failed as the federal head of humanity by breaking the covenant of works. This is a very important point to understand. Verse six adds, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, I don't know when Adam showed up, How long he was there, but for however long he was with Eve, the snake should have been dead. But he then just failed to protect his wife. He failed as a spiritual leader. He failed as the representative of all mankind. He failed to keep the conditions of the covenant of works. John Calvin said this, When they saw the serpent, an apostate, from his creator, not only did they neglect to punish it, but in violation of all lawful order, they subjected and devoted themselves to it as participators in the same apostasy. Why didn't they exercise dominion over the serpent? The snake was supposed to bow to them, but instead they bowed to the snake. Unthinkable for the vice regents of the world. It is clear in verses 7 through 10 that Adam and Eve felt guilty, ashamed, and fearful. Their nakedness made them uncomfortable, so they covered themselves with fig trees. Instead of eating the delicious fruit of the fig tree, they confiscated its leaves to cover their shame. Adam broke the covenant of works, securing for himself and everyone after him physical, spiritual, and eternal death. He brought condemnation upon humanity. Now, it will help you to understand these three theological terms. They are not too fancy for you to understand. Original sin, actual sin, and imputed sin. Original sin is the corruption of Adam's nature which infiltrates every human being after Him. Therefore, humans are born with a sinful nature. They're born with a sinful disposition. Born enslaved to sin. Actual sin is sinful actions done because of original sin. We lie because we are liars by nature. We covet because we are idolaters by nature. We lust because we are adulterers by nature and so forth. Imputed sin is Adam's sin, which puts all humanity into a guilty standing beneath God's law. Matt Perman describes the difference between imputed and original sin. He said this, imputed sin is the ruin of our standing before God and is thus not an internal quality, but an objective reckoning of guilt, whereas original sin... Is the ruin of our character and thus is a reference to internal qualities. Our nature is fallen, and Adam's guilt. Is imputed to us and we are guilty. Adam was our federal head, the God appointed representative of humanity, acting on our behalf, and his sin not only corrupted our nature, but it put us into guilty standing before God's law, under God's law. There's a hint of Adam's federal headship in Genesis three. In Genesis three, one through five, you is plural, but in verse nine it is singular. Listen again, starting in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you, singular? Why was God addressing Adam only? Well, from the context of Genesis 1 through 3, Adam was Eve's head. He bore responsibility. Eve sinned first, yet if you consider the New Testament, she's only mentioned twice in the New Testament. Adam, on the other hand, is talked about in the New Testament in great detail as the sole representative of humanity. That's interesting. The most striking place Adam's federal headship is explained is Romans 5:12 through 21. I want you to hear this it's a long section and I want you to be thinking in your mind, is God the repre- or, I'm sorry, is Adam the representative of all humanity when he was in that garden and how does the imputation of his sin and guilt, original sin imputed sin work? So just listen. therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right. According to Paul now, Adam is the federal head of the entire human race. And Christ is the federal head of God's chosen people. If you take away Adam's federal headship, you lose the gospel. You lose the imputation of Christ's righteousness to every believer. Paul was crystal clear in verse 14. Adam was a type of the one to come, a type of Christ. There is a striking similarity between Adam and Christ, and this is beautiful, Christ is the second and greater Adam. He does what Adam failed to do. Verse 18 is key. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Do you see the connection? There is an inseparable connection between Adam's sin being imputed to all of humanity and Christ's righteousness being imputed to believers. A huge connection. Consider 1 Corinthians 15.22, which adds, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. When Adam broke the covenant of works, humanity broke it with him and broke it in him. That makes this relevant for you and for me the second part of my syllogism outline is this adam was your federal head adam represented you and his sin is your sin the Westminster Larger Catechism asked the question Did all mankind fall in that first transgression? And the answer is the covenant being made with Adam as a representative person, not for himself only, but for his descendants, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. Translate that You fell. With Adam in his transgression. Adam was your representative and you sinned in him. When Adam ate, you ate in him. Original sin and Adam's guilt passes to you because you deserve physical, spiritual, and eternal death. The moment you were born, the moment you came into this world, you were deserving of God's wrath and God's justice. Me too. And if at this moment you're tempted to think, thinking of Adam's representing you, oh no, that is unfair. Why was he the one? Why not me in the garden? I want you to just consider three simple things that I think will help humble your wicked spirit. Number one, what does God's word say about Adam representing humanity? Did God say it? Number two, let's say Adam wasn't your federal head, okay? How have you done in obeying God's law perfectly here on earth since you've been alive? And three, if, and this is perhaps the most important, well, God said it, and we should believe it, that's the most important probably, but if imputed sin is unacceptable to you, then the imputation of Christ's righteousness by grace through faith must also be unacceptable to you. And that makes the gospel unacceptable to you. Adam was your federal head and representative, and Adam failed. He broke the covenant of works. He freely chose death and condemnation instead of life and blessing from God. So the conclusion of my syllogism is this. Therefore, you broke the covenant of works in Adam. You were born into this world a covenant breaker, a law breaker by nature, and by Adam's imputed sin, you were born guilty under God's law. You were not born a blank slate. That's a lie from hell. You were not born morally innocent. That is a lie from hell. Heidelberg 5 says you are inclined by nature to hate God and your neighbor. That's original sin. That's what the Bible teaches. If you take a glass of water and you mix in a few uh, drops of poison and you mix it up really good, will you be able to then separate the poison from the water? No way. All of the water is tainted by all of the poison. So it is with you and sin. Sin. Muse on this thought. We are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. Our sinful nature results in our sinful actions. Do you understand what I'm saying? You break the covenant of works every single day because by nature you are a covenant breaker. Heidelberg number 19 says, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries in this life to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. Saints, apart from Christ, you have no communion with God because by breaking his covenant of works, you are his enemy apart from Christ Adam's sin and guilt have been imputed to you therefore you are radically corrupt pervasively corrupt inescapably corrupt apart from Christ you are what we call totally depraved everything about you is evil What does it mean to say human beings are totally depraved? It means that apart from Christ, in your natural state, you are entirely sinful, guilty, and condemned beneath God's good law. Your body is depraved. Your mind is depraved. Your emotions are depraved. And your will is depraved. And that's why you break God's law every day. Every part of you has been polluted by Adam's fall and you are totally wicked. It's sad how many people think they are good-natured and how they talk about others being good-natured. He's such a good guy. Oh, he's such a, he's such a good boy, such a good kid. Uh, I've heard a company boast on Christian radio of employing good-natured guys. Not sure where they found those. Wow. Do we really understand God's word on this? Are we ready to believe the gospel? It can be hard to swallow, but Scripture and our experience confirms it. It's not only Scripture, it's also what we experience every day. Left to ourselves, we are not good-natured. We are depraved, immoral, and degenerate people. Consider what God has said, and I'm going to go through this quickly just to drive home my point. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8.21, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Solomon said in 1 Kings 8.46, There is no one who does not sin. In Psalm 51.5, David admitted, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Again, uh, uh, David wrote, in Psalm 58, 3, "...the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies." You understand that with toddlers and little boys. Okay, Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 9.3. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. Isaiah 64.6. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away jeremiah 17 verse 9 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it matthew 15:19 this is jesus for out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness, slander. In Luke 11, 13, Jesus looked at his disciples and he called his chosen disciples evil. Imagine hearing your divine rabbi look at you and say, you are evil. Romans 3, 10 through 18, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps, interesting connection, is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift. To shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Folks, that's not a pretty picture. And that is a picture of you and me apart from Christ. Can you say with all of your heart and mean it, I am evil apart from Christ? Christians can say that. Christians do say that. And if we don't like our diagnosis, if you don't, I don't like how you're talking, Pastor. That offends me. And you'd rather think of yourself as good-natured people. You should consider very carefully 1 John 1, 8 and 10, which say this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. To deny the doctrine of total human depravity is to call God a liar. You have a need. I have a need. Everyone under the sun has a need. Our need is this. We are shot through with sin and will die in it if we are not rescued. Our greatest need is not oxygen, it's not food, it's not water, it's not shelter, it's not love, it's not money, it's not affection. Our greatest need is to be rescued from our sick and twisted sin before we perish in it. Is there anyone who can rescue us from our sin and misery? Yes. Yes. Here's what will prevent you from leaving here after I've shouted at you. Feeling guilty, miserable, and depressed. You don't have to leave that way. And and here it is. Martin Luther wrote something so profound uh, that it serves, I think, as a great connection to where I'm going. It's like the transition that just says it better than I could because Luther was also... Listen to this amazing insight. They cannot be humbled who do not recognize that they are damnable whose sin smells to high heaven. (laughs) That's not it, but that's great. All right, he goes on, he goes on. This is what he said. Sin is recognized only through the law. It is apparent that not despair, but rather hope. Do not miss that. Not despair, but rather hope. Is preached when we are told that we are sinners. Such preaching concerning sin is a preparation for grace, or it is rather the recognition of sin and faith in such preaching. Yearning for grace wells up with recognition of when, when recognition of sin has arisen. A sick person seeks the physician when he recognizes the seriousness of his illness. Yes! Luther, he nailed it. Our need drives us to that which can meet our need. If you don't believe what I've just yelled over the past of how many minutes, this last part where I'm going to say, it's just not going to be good for you. God gave Adam and Eve gospel. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve received curses, horrible curses for breaking the covenant of works, but God gave them gospel with grieving hearts. After making a mess of humanity and a mess of the garden and a mess of the world, Adam and Eve heard God tell the treacherous serpent this, I will put enmity between you and the woman." And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's gospel. And Adam and Eve clung to it by faith. Eve would have a child. She awaited her serpent crushing child. God promised the arrival of a seed, a son, to crush the head of Satan. God's anointed one would be born a savior, a son of Eve to conquer Satan and all of his wicked schemes and lies. God would raise up a great covenant keeper, a second and better Adam who would obey God's law perfectly. Adam and Eve were saved by grace through faith in the coming of the seed and in time God sent his son Jesus Christ to do what Adam failed to do. What you failed to do in Adam, what I failed to do in Adam, where your federal head, Adam, failed, where you failed, your federal head, Jesus Christ, succeeded for you. Like Humpty Dumpty, you fell off the wall and you cracked yourself to pieces. Only the king can put you back together again. God has not left us without a Savior, without one who can make us whole again, who can carry our sin and our guilt and our shame and who can restore God's image in us. Our need of being rescued from our sin and misery drives us to the one who can actually rescue us from our sin and from our misery and from our guilt and from our grief and from our pain and gives us life and gives us joy. Your greatest need is Jesus. Allow your need to Jesus to drive you to Jesus to find your greatest joy, to find your greatest pleasure in Jesus. Don't trust your own law-keeping. Don't trust your own righteousness. It will only keep you from Jesus. You are deeply and unwaveringly assured of your salvation When you know that you have failed miserably to keep the covenant of works, but that Christ kept the covenant of works for you, when you look to the righteousness of Christ imputed to you through faith, then you are assured of your salvation and made thankful in the grace of God for all that He has done for you in Christ Dear saints, I'm talking to you believers now. Do not be disheartened by your sinful nature and guilt. Be grateful that Christ is your righteousness. Those of you not in Christ, you should be utterly terrified because His justice is coming for you. Trust Christ! receive his righteousness by faith. The gospel changes how God sees you. Because of Christ, God no longer sees believers as covenant breakers. He's not saying, shame on you, my child, because look at the royal mess you made. Get out of my house. That's not his tone. That's not his demeanor. He reckons His children, He reckons believers, and He sees them as faithful covenant keepers in His Son. Be grateful that God has credited to you the righteousness of the seed that He has brought you from in Adam to in Christ and set your heart on keeping God's law which is so precious. And not to become righteous, not to somehow, I hope God likes me today if I do everything as He's asked. Not with that spirit. No, no. No, no. Receive His righteousness by faith. Strive to obey His law because you're grateful that you are already counted righteousness in Christ. Cling to that gospel. Cling to Christ. He is so precious, and you can be assured not because of your goodness, but because of His. He is your assurance of salvation. Father in heaven, no matter how loud I get or passionate I am, I cannot make these dear people understand. I can't make myself understand. We need a radical act of your grace right now and your spirit because people will leave here perhaps completely miserable. And honestly, if they do, they should be because they have not heard Christ yet. I pray for my brothers and sisters that when they look at the heinousness of their sin and how morally reprehensible they are apart from Christ, they will so quickly flee to the cross and find their righteousness in Christ and simply bask in the glory of receiving it freely by grace through faith. God, you are such a wonderful Father to give us Christ and you count us as covenant keepers. And God, because of your Spirit, when we as your children who are weak and frail, when we try to do something good to please you, you receive it. With joy, because you receive us in Christ. God, no doubt there are people here who they are not getting it. They don't understand how horrible they are. They still are holding on to their own goodness and self righteousness. Shatter it, God, with your gospel. Tell them how horrible they are. Help them to see it. And then, oh God, by your sovereign grace, Lead them by Your Spirit, by the preaching of Your Word, to come to drink from the fountain of life, Jesus Christ. Oh God, that unbelievers would come to know the glories and beauties of the covenant-keeping of Christ and that all of those blessings are theirs by faith. God, give faith, give repentance, give salvation at this moment. Help them to turn from their wickedness and trust in Christ and His perfect righteousness. And God, may we all leave here completely overjoyed that our status because of Christ and by the faith you've given us is no longer covenant breaker but covenant keeper because our mighty Jesus kept the covenant for us. We love you. Thank you for your law. Thank you for your gospel. Amen.